Those are wonderful words to sing and wonderful words to ponder and base our lives upon, really, as we go through the many challenging things of life in a fallen world. Well, please join me today again in John chapter 18, the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. John chapter 18. Before we actually get into our study, I want to talk for a moment about American baseball. I love the game of baseball. I even played it for a few years. But even if you don't care for it, even if you've never been to a baseball game, you are still likely to be familiar with this one very important baseball rule. Here it is. Three strikes and you're out. Now this actual rule is based upon the fact that if a ball is thrown by a pitcher in such a way that the pitch goes over home plate and at the right height, then that pitch is called a strike. And if the batter swings his bat and misses that well-thrown ball three times, or if he even lets a good pitch like that just go by without swinging three times, or any combination of not swinging and swinging and missing, then the batter must return to the dugout because you only get three strikes literally in baseball, three strikes and you're out. Now, as we know, that actual rule in baseball also eventually became a a metaphor, an expression. It's an expression that describes someone who has exhausted all his or her opportunities to do something And the idea conveyed is that you only get so many chances in some situation, and that's it. Then you're out, so to speak. Well, even though people did not use that expression in Jesus' day, that expression could, in a sense, actually have been applied to one of Jesus' disciples, Simon Peter. Peter failed miserably in a spiritual way. In fact, there was a sad occasion when he failed precisely three times. So the question is, was he out? I mean, as far as having a relationship with Jesus was concerned, well, it is our study today of John 18 that prompts those observations and questions about Peter. Just to review, last week we looked at two separate passages in John 18. We first looked at verses 12 through 14, and then we jumped to verses 19 through 24, where in those two passages, we found the account of Jesus's trial or his hearing before a man named Annas. This was on the night that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the crucifixion. Now, this man, Annas, at one time had been the official high priest, the one who was the leader or the president, you might say, of a group called the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Judaism. Annas had one time held that position of high priest. But by this point in time that we are studying, he had actually been removed from that office by the Romans. He was removed in the year uh, 15 A.D., By the time of the events of John 18, another man 
held that position. It was Annas' son-in-law, a man named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the official high priest. However, as I mentioned last week, Annas still had such a high level of influence in the minds of the people that the combined Jewish and Roman group that arrested Jesus that night, they took him first to Annas to be interrogated. Annas lived in a palace on the west side of the city of Jerusalem, on a hill on the west side of Jerusalem, and the interrogation of Jesus took place inside that house, that palace. But while Jesus was being questioned by Annas on the inside of the house, Peter was also experiencing an interrogation, a simultaneous interrogation on the outside of that house. So we could say that there were two trials going on at the same time that fateful night. But as we'll see, the outcomes of the two trials, the interrogation of Jesus and the interrogation of Peter, the outcomes were completely different. Now we find this event related to Peter in John chapter 18, once again in two separate passages, verses 15 through 18, and then we'll look at verses 25 to 27. I mentioned to you last week that the author John discusses Jesus' trial a little bit, and then he discusses the interrogation of Peter a little bit, and then he goes back to Jesus, and then he goes back to Peter. And I mentioned that I just made the decision to pull out the material uh, dealing with Jesus' trial and address it first, which we did last time. And that was accompanied by the decision then to pull out the material related to Peter and discuss it second, which we will do today. But I'll also make a comment on how those two sections work together. So again, the arresting officers that night took Jesus directly from the garden to the palace where Annas lived. That's verses 12 through 14. But there's a question. Peter is there. So how did that happen? How did Peter get there? We'll go back to verse 10 for a moment. It's that famous scene where after the soldiers and the Jewish religious authorities came to arrest Jesus, Simon Peter was very concerned about that. He wanted to protect Jesus, so he pulled out a dagger that he was carrying and he sought to defend Jesus. Well, that was an ill-fated attempt. Jesus stopped him. In fact, it was so ill-fated that as he swung his dagger, he wounded a man standing nearby, a man named Malchus, and cut off his ear. Boldness, you could say, maybe in Peter. Well, the reality, despite that momentary boldness in attacking and wounding Malchus, Peter, as well as the other of the 11 disciples that were with Jesus that night, Judas was not there. Judas had already left the group to go betray Jesus, but Jesus and the 11 were there. Peter and the rest of them, after all this happened and they arrested Jesus, they fled. Matthew mentions that. Matthew chapter 26, verse 56 says, very bluntly, then all the disciples left him and fled. But Peter, evidently, after gaining some personal composure, started following that arresting party to Annas' house. Once again, though John omits that part, Matthew 
fills in for us, Matthew 26, now verse 58. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down to see the outcome. We get a little more details about Peter in our passage today. And for what we will study today, keep this in mind, Peter is not in the house, he's outside the house, while Jesus is inside being interrogated by Annas. And what happens outside is tragic because Peter denied knowing Jesus. And that is something so tragic that all four writings of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record this event. Now, of course, this is something we shouldn't be surprised at In fact, Jesus predicted it would happen. We saw that back in John chapter 13, verses 37 and 38. Here's John 13, 37 and 38. Peter had just said to the Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Confusing to Peter at the moment, but it won't be later on. So we're going to outline our study today by those three denials. Denials that express really a a growing fearfulness in the heart of Peter. Here's number one. We'll just call it the easy denial. The easy denial. Verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. And court there means courtyard. So we see here that actually Peter was not alone. It says another disciple had also chosen to tag along that night behind the soldiers. Now, this other disciple is not identified here. But traditionally, he has been identified with the one that's called in the Gospel of John from time to time, the one that's referred to as the beloved disciple. And that is a way that John, the author, regularly refers to himself in this book. Now, later on in John chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, we'll see that John, instead of calling himself the beloved disciple, does refer to himself as the other disciple there. And we know this, that that one who's always called or regularly called the disciple whom Jesus loved, in the Gospel of John, he's frequently associated with Peter. So the traditional view that this other disciple being John, that is likely the correct view. It's John. Yet it could seem a bit surprising to some that it is John because of what verse 15 says, and then what verse 16 says again. Both those verses say that this other disciple was known to Annas. Now that term known does not mean here just some sort of simple recognition, as if Annas might have caught a glimpse of this other disciple and and thought to himself, oh, I, I know him, he's that guy that's always working down at the lake. No, it's not that. It's a word that conveys a level, some level of intimate knowledge. So how is it even possible that a lowly fisherman like John could be known to the high priest? 
Well, we can go to some literature outside Scripture and find some interesting data. For example, in the apocryphal literature, we find that uh, it says that the apostle John used to deliver fish to Annas, the high priest, while John was working for his father in the fishing business. Maybe that's true. But what we do know is something said in Scripture, that John's father was a successful businessman, In fact, Mark chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 say that he was so wealthy and successful that he actually had many hired hands working for him. Plus, there's something else possible about John, and that is that through his mother, whose name is Salome, through him, her, it's possible that John was of a priestly descent. Salome was the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. Mary was related to Elizabeth. And according to Luke chapter 1, verse 5, Elizabeth was from a priestly family. All that just adds together to say that, yes, it is possible that John could have been known by this man named Annas. Ultimately, we don't know for certain that this was John, but whoever this other disciple was, He was able to enter the high priest's courtyard without being questioned, but Peter was not. So here's the situation. Jesus was brought bound to Annas' house, and the other disciple, likely John, was following, and he went into the courtyard area with no trouble, but Peter was blocked from entering, was left outside, and the other disciple noticed that, verse 16. But Peter, standing at the door outside, was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. In other words, John goes over there and says, okay, he's with me. Now that doorkeeper, according to the feminine form of the Greek word that's used, was a woman. And that's confirmed by verse 17. This doorkeeper was a female domestic slave. By the way, just that fact lets us know that this trial did not take place at the temple precincts because only men could fulfill a duty like that at the temple. No, it was at the house of Annas. So once the other disciples spoke to this woman, she allowed Peter then to come in, which likely means she was at least familiar with that other disciple as well. So Peter entered the courtyard. The courtyard would have been an open-air Atrium connected with Annas' house. Now, it is likely that the house where Caiaphas lived shared the same courtyard, like on the other side of the courtyard, which means after Annas was finished with Jesus, the Lord would have been led through that courtyard over to the Caiaphas' house for the hearing before Caiaphas and at least part of the Sanhedrin, a hearing that we mentioned last week that John chose not to record. Let's keep going. Verse 17, the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now that question is worded in Greek uh, as if it's expecting a negative answer. And it appears, like I said, this slave girl knew the other disciple was a follower of Jesus. Not only knew him, but knew he was a follower of Jesus because she asked if Peter was also a follower of Jesus, you see. 
But please understand, this was not a belligerent question by the girl. It was not a hostile question. It was a simple, casual, even innocent remark. Nevertheless, that simple question precipitated some level of fear that began to grow in Peter's heart. So he blurted out, verse 17, I am not. Now, Peter was not only a bit fearful, he was also thinking something like this, that if he told the truth, I'm going to have to get into a conversation with this girl and tell her more about my relationship with this man, Jesus. And if I do that, as a result, I'll likely be asked to leave. So it seemed the easiest way to answer was just to say a simple but clear, I'm not. Now, Calvin understood, John Calvin, that there was a level of fear even at this point. Calvin sees Peter's failure as an example of the kind of frailty that's common to all of us. So he makes this comment. Now, at the voice of a single maid, and that voice unaccompanied by threatening, Peter has confounded and throws down his arms. Such is a demonstration of the power of man. Richard Phillips adds this. The servant woman did not ask Peter whether he was an insurrectionist. She didn't ask him, are you a heretic? She didn't ask him, are you a blasphemer? She didn't ask him, are you an enemy of Judaism? She merely asked whether he was a follower of Jesus. Peter, despite the humble station of the questioner, and her unthreatening manner of speech immediately abandoned his fidelity to Christ. And how easy it was for him to do it, if perhaps even logical for him to do it. Well, as events unfolded more, the pressure on Peter to cave in is increasing. And that brings us to the second denial. We'll call it the forceful denial. The forceful denial. Verse 18. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. The slaves here, that would have been servants of the high priest. The officers would have been the Jewish members of that arresting party, those who were likely the temple police, we'd call them. And they're cold. Nights in Jerusalem at that time of year, the spring, could very well be chilly. So it makes sense that they would have a fire going. Both Mark and Luke also mentioned that there was a fire there, but it's only John that tells us that it was a charcoal fire. Now, interesting, later on in chapter 21, you know that scene when the risen Jesus found the disciples fishing on the lake there, and then he he gathers them there to him on the seashore. They have breakfast together, you know, fish for breakfast. You ever had fried fish at a campfire for breakfast? That's another issue, but it's very good, okay? Not in the text. There, in that account, John 21, you can find that John also mentions there that it was a charcoal fire. What's the importance of that? That that verse and this verse mention charcoal fire. And just so you know, they're the only two verses in the New Testament that mention a charcoal fire. It just adds more support to the fact that this other disciple was John. Well, there was someone else also around that fire, verse 18. 
And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. I mean, evidently, Peter's thought is, I need to blend in as much as possible. I need to be as inconspicuous as possible here tonight. And to stand all alone in the courtyard, he's thinking, well, that's just going to draw further attention to me. I want to get that attention off myself. So in his mind, to join the others, that just took the pressure off him then being noticed. It's not hard to imagine what the conversation could have included around that fire with all those people. I'm sure it included mocking Jesus, saying things about Jesus in there, being interrogated. The problem is Peter's choice to be with them placed him in a very challenging situation. Increased peer pressure, we call it, from the wrong crowd, which can make faithfulness to the Lord even more difficult. It is at this point then that John leaves the account of Peter, leaves him in the courtyard, and in verse 19, the scene shifts indoors to that dramatic interaction between Annas and Jesus, and that's what we studied last week. But I want to go ahead and read it just to keep that flow of thought going, starting in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Then John takes us back outside to the fire and to what was happening at the same time with Peter, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Listen to Matthew's version of the same event. Matthew 26, 73. The bystanders came up, meaning to the fire, and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. In other words, the servants recognized Peter's Galilean accent, like we recognize, you know, about some of you, different parts of the country you've come from. Maybe the Northeast, New England, you know, places like that, Texas. They recognized a Galilean accent. He had to be then a follower of Jesus. That's where Jesus was from. Notice John's use of the pronoun they. They began to speak to him. That fits with the Matthew version I just read that the bystanders said. In other words, there was a single servant girl speaking, but others standing around the fire heard that, and so they all chimed in. But the main point is this, here was a chance, here was another strike, an opportunity, a chance for Peter to redeem himself, for him to be honest and to have courage. Yet once again he failed, and this time it's, it's a more forceful denial. Verse 25, he denied it and said, I am not now, with that first denial, 
you know, distancing himself from Jesus. Perhaps he's thinking that's an easy way to ensure that I can stay in the courtyard. The problem is once he committed that denial, it got easy to do it again, but this time with more intensity. Well, it goes from bad to worse. (laughs) The repeated questioning of Peter like that around the fire caught the attention of somebody. It aroused the suspicions of someone in particular, and that individual recognized Peter in the firelight. And that brings us to denial number three. Let's call it the complete denial. The complete denial. Verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, oh no. I mean, what are the odds? said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now, this third questioning, no doubt, was the most threatening one to Peter because of who asked it? A relative of Malchus. The one whose ear was cut off by Peter. So this last questioner was far more to be feared than the others for obvious reasons. But there's a difference in how this question is asked. It's not expecting a negative answer. This third one begins with a different sort of Greek uh, construction, and this construction expects a positive answer. That means this third question amounts more to an accusation. You could render it something like this. I saw you in the garden with him, didn't I? So what's the problem? I mean, is it a, was it a crime to be a follower of Jesus? No, at least not yet in their history. But assaulting a man with a sword was. That was a crime. So at this question, Peter was definitely thinking the need for self-preservation. And therefore, the result was predictable. Verse 27, Peter then denied it again. Yeah, but John doesn't record what Peter said. We get that from Mark's account. Listen to this, Mark 14, verse 71. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. You see, by this point, Peter was panicking. And therefore, he emphatically and categorically categorically and completely denied any knowledge of Jesus whatsoever. And then at that very moment, some very interesting things happened that drew these two dramas together, the one involving Jesus on the inside and Peter on the outside. The first thing that happened, John does mention briefly, verse 27, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now, it's hard to specify exactly what time in the morning this was in first century Jerusalem. Various historical sources estimate that it's a range really anywhere from 12.30 a.m., in other words, after midnight for sure, uh, all the way till 5 a.m. There are some Bible scholars who say that it was not actually even the crowing of a real rooster, but a trumpet signal that was given at the close of the third watch every night. That literal trumpet signal had come to be known as the cock crow. If that's what it was, then Jesus' interrogation and Peter's denials would have concluded around 3 a.m. Either way, we know it's the next day. It was definitely in the early morning hours on Friday. But there was a second and third thing that happened. John doesn't record this. 
Luke does. Listen to Luke 22, verses 61 and 62. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, quote, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. You see, at that moment, Jesus was being led across that courtyard to the other side, to Caiaphas' house. At the very moment, and Peter looks up and sees the look on Jesus' face and heard that cock crowing, and he was overwhelmed with shame, guilt, grief, regret at his denials. And as I already mentioned, it all happened just as Jesus had predicted it would. Well, at this point in the narrative, John moves on once again to Jesus' encounter with Pilate, the Roman official which we will begin to look at next week. And the reason, you see, that John wrote it this way, that he interwove Jesus' replies to his accusers and Peter's denial is to point out the contrast between Peter's denials and Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus had courage. Jesus stood up to his interrogators and denied nothing while Peter cringed before those who interrogated him and ended up denying everything. I would imagine of all the abuse that Jesus had to endure that night at the trials, being slapped in the face, later on he was spat upon and hit. In my own mind, I'm thinking that Peter's denials must have wounded the Lord even more deeply. No doubt, Jesus is also grieved when any of his people today deny him. Therefore, this narrative should prompt us to remember some words of Jesus in another text. Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Sobering words. A sobering narrative text, really. But from this narrative, I believe we can recognize some various temptations that we still face today. So I want to give them to you. There's four of them. From this narrative, we can recognize that we too face some temptations, and here's the first one. Number one, fearing man. Fearing man. The fear of man is mentioned in Scripture, and it basically means this. It's caring more about what people think than even what God thinks. It results in seeking to please people. And Scripture teaches us that it's a form of bondage, enslavement, Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare, a trap. Many people are trapped into this fear of man. All struggle with it at some level. 
But think about that night. The problem for Peter that night was that he put himself in a situation where he would be tempted to care way too much about what others thought of him. And the fact is, we can add as well. We do need to be alert to situations where we might most be tempted to fall into this sin, the fear of man. There's a second temptation. It's very closely related. Temptation number two, seeking acceptance by the world. Seeking acceptance by the world. Do you realize by the time this happened that evening, Peter had been following Jesus for three years? But that night in the courtyard, he somehow convinced himself that he could stand with sinners and not really have a problem. It was okay if I just sort of try to blend in and be inconspicuous. Listen, that's a danger we face as well. Maybe we would not openly abandon the Lord, but we might still be tempted to habitually try to blend in and be inconspicuous with the unbelieving world. It should remind us of the words of Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. We must always be on guard for this. Against seeking to be comfortable and settled with the world and always remembering who we are, that we are those whom God owns. In God's perspective, expectations of his people and the way he sees his people has never changed. Listen to what he says in the Old Testament about the nation of Israel. You see it clearly in many verses. Here's one, Psalm 135, verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. But that idea of being owned by God and therefore being separated from those who are not applies to the church as well in the New Testament. Listen to Titus 2, verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's who we are. So to seek to blend in with the world, to seek to be as inconspicuous as possible, does not fit our identity. We need to be upfront about our faith in Jesus. Please understand what I don't mean by that. I don't mean being belligerent, ungracious, uncompassionate. I don't mean taking a stand for Christ in trite and silly ways. Just look at my bumper sticker. People can tell I, I love the Lord. Not that. And so much of of the social media postings by Christians are embarrassing. I don't mean any of that. Basically, what I mean is each of us taking, seeking, taking this seriously, seeking to intentionally live out the character of Jesus in this world. And that character of Jesus is most concisely given to us in a list in Galatians 5 that we call the fruit of the Spirit. I'll read Galatians 5, 22 and 23 for us. And as you hear this again, listen, this is a picture of Jesus. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control against such things. There is no law. That's how we are to live in the world. And that lifestyle then gives us the grounds for being bold in our testimony for Jesus. It feeds our desire to testify for Jesus. I read this verse to you last week, but it bears repeating again. It's Psalm, excuse me, Proverbs 28, verse 1. Proverbs 28, 1 says at the end of it, the righteous are bold as a lion. We need to be on guard against the temptation of fearing man and against the temptation of seeking acceptance by the world. Temptation number three, boasting in personal abilities. Boasting in personal abilities. See, Peter once boasted, Oh, Lord, I can follow you anywhere. I'll do anything for you. I'll even die for you, Lord. Did you know he even compared himself to the other disciples? Mark gives us that part of the statement. Listen to Mark 14, 29. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, and I can just see Peter when he said that, even though all can fall away, those other guys, yet I will not. What a miscalculation of personal strength and courage that was. What was the problem? He trusted in the wrong thing. He trusted in himself instead of resting in God's strength and God's faithfulness. We we can't live boldly for the Lord in our own strength. It's impossible. So we ought to see this tragic story of Peter's multiple denials even as a a warning to all of us that boasting in our, our abilities and anything about ourselves, that's just an invitation to failure. Doesn't Scripture actually teach that in Proverbs 16, 18? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. One more thing about Peter's overconfidence in self here. It has to do with something that happened earlier in the evening before the courtyard scene. Let's go back to the garden for a moment. John didn't record this part of the Garden of Gethsemane experience that night. When Jesus and the disciples first got there, what was on Jesus' mind? Praying for strength, praying for help. Matthew tells us about that. Listen, Matthew 26, 36 to 45. Then Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. John's one of those. And began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and he just fell on his face and he prayed saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he gets up thinking, the men are over there praying with me about this. Verse 40 says, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew goes on to tell us that that happened two more times. Three times Peter failed to pray. James Boyce makes this observation. James Montgomery Boyce. 
before I read the quote, he first says in his commentary, something like this, that uh, that night in the garden, I mean, Jesus was the one who needed the prayer the least, you know, you'd think. So boy says this, if we were to pick someone who needed prayer, it would be Peter. Yet Peter is sleeping in the garden while the Lord is pouring out his soul before his heavenly father. The fact is we cannot follow Jesus in our own strength. So instead of being confident in our own abilities and boasting in something about us, we need to entrust ourselves to the Lord, praying for his strength to be evident in us and through us. Perhaps you've heard these words, famous words from John Bunyan about prayer. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. The bottom line for any of us is this, an overconfident view of self, an overconfident sort of self-relying spirit will never be active in prayer. We must put our trust in the Lord and not in ourselves. Don't you see that that was part of John's point in weaving these two accounts in and out of one another? So that we'll see that Jesus alone is the faithful one to trust. We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust other people ultimately. We can only trust him. Temptation number four, the last one. Focusing on defeat. Focusing on defeat. Aren't you grateful that what happened that night is not the end of the story for Peter? Later in John, that same scene at the seashore, John chapter 21, that breakfast scene, we find this, that as serious as Peter's denials of the Lord were, Jesus forgave Peter by his grace and even restored Peter to fellowship and service and usefulness and fruitfulness. Amazingly, in Christ, there is forgiveness for the worst sins. No wonder that years later is Peter who told of the forgiveness of sin this way, the forgiveness of his own sins, the forgiveness of ours. He wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Why did Peter write that? Because in his own heart, he knew that it was due to the blood of Christ, shed in payment for sin, that his own failure, his own betrayal had been washed away. And he had hope. And that means there's hope for the rest of us as well. It was also Peter who wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1. This is verse 3. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter had come to understand where he needed to put his trust. He had come to rest in the work, in the achievement of the very one he had failed that night. He became finally able to entrust, understood what it meant to entrust himself to the one 
who had never forsaken him. For Peter, it was not three strikes and you're out. And that hope is for everyone who turns to Jesus in saving faith, trusting him alone for the forgiveness of our sin and trusting themselves and their life to him, following him, them, as their Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for a passage like this that not only convicts us because we see ourselves in this in some way, but we're also encouraged to know that Jesus forgives sin. So, Father, I pray that we would take this to heart. I pray that we would be honest about our own selves, even going to you to pray, to search our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us. Are, are we guilty of struggling with the fear of man? Do we seek acceptance from people in the world? Do we just try to blend in and be inconspicuous? Do we, are we relying on our own abilities in some way, boasting in that, thinking we're something special, better than others even, maybe we think? Do we struggle with regret in our failures? And we focus on that defeat instead of on Christ and what he's done. Lord, may we leave this place fleeing to Christ again, grateful for his sacrifice on the cross that pays for every sin, past, present, and future, for all those who trust in him. And Lord, may we be bold this week, not in a belligerent, ugly, unchristian way, but in a biblical way seeking to live out the fruit of the Spirit in the eyes of the world, no matter what happens. Thank you, Lord, that you are the faithful one, that though we fail, you never fail. Though we, in a moment of time, even seem to let go of the things we believe, you never let go of us. So thank you for the assurance that gives us in our wonderful Savior's name. Amen.